The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke, glory to you, Lord Christ. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going on farther. And so they urged him earnestly, stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now nearly spent. And so he went in with them to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road, as he opened the scriptures to us? And they rose at that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and the other disciples gathered saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. What will drive us into mission? What will drive us into mission, into sharing Christ with the world? Many of us have been admonished in sermons to be on mission. We've been cajoled in sermons to be on mission. We've even been begged in sermons to be on mission. But these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they need, as we saw last week already, they need no prodding, no cajoling to be on mission. They are running into mission. And this is a pattern within the New Testament. Believers need no prodding into mission. It is the gospel that gets a hold of their burning hearts, as we saw last week, that moves their feet into mission. My father retired just this week. Uh, it's uh, been an interesting process watching my dad get ready for retirement over the last few years. And as he got closer, it was amazing because his, his, it wasn't that he was gearing down, it was almost more like he was gearing up as he went closer and closer into retirement. He took on more activities, right? This was not clearly a retiring into nothing. This was a retiring into something. And for him, it's been more mission. I've watched him serve uh, the diocese I served in Canada, C to C to C, uh, as the chancellor for the whole of the country. I've seen him serve as the vice chancellor for all of our Anglican church in North America. But then he started adding other things. He said, I'm going to start leading a men's study group. And then why don't I help land a group of refugees in Ottawa? and get them set up through the church. And, and, and then finally uh, said, let's start working in some of our street outreach programs with some of the marginalized and the people in the inner city streets of Ottawa. And so I've watched him ramp up and this week he retires. And so as a retirement gift, I said, great, dad is more and more committed to a kingdom orientation, a missional orientation. So our gift to him was we sent our oldest two daughters to them this week. <laughs> we said, there's some kingdom work. You can help, you know, foster and build mission into your eldest granddaughters uh, for a few weeks of the summer. But again, this picture, 
as disciples that mission is something that emerges, emerges because of hearts for the gospel. Last week, Luke said in verse 32 that it's about burning hearts. Did our hearts not burn within us, the Emmaus disciples say, as he talked with us on the road, as he opened the scriptures to us. Those burning hearts move their feet into mission. But if we look at today's text, this latter part of the Emmaus Road story, there's a piece that Luke still wants to reveal. You see, these disciples had their burning hearts that entire walk on that road, but something was still missing. They still had not recognized who they were talking to. Something was still missing. They needed to recognize Christ. It wasn't until in verse 30 of our text here in chapter 24 of Luke's gospel, as Jesus, their eyes are kept from seeing him. They don't know it's him. But Jesus at table with them takes bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. And they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And it's then that they say, did not our hearts burn within us? And then verse 33, and at that same hour, they rose and returned to Jerusalem. With that news, we, he has been made known to us in the breaking of the bread. See, what Luke is trying to show us is that disciples' feet move into mission because of burning hearts and broken bread. Word and sacraments. That moves us into mission. You see, what Luke's going to show us in this short set of verses is that in the broken bread, in the breaking of the bread, we find Jesus' presence. Jesus present to his disciples. They recognize him in that moment. But also in the breaking of the bread, they see Jesus' purpose. This is not accidental. He did this on purpose. He gave them this meal. He gave us this meal on purpose. His presence, his purpose, but not just that. In broken bread, in this short passage, we find Jesus in this meal give peace. First of all, in broken bread, we find Jesus' presence. Verse 35, it's one of the most provocative statements, I think, in the early church about communion. Verse 35, their report to the disciples is he was made known to us in the breaking of the bread. Somehow in that moment when he was at table with them, breaking the bread, blessing it, breaking it, giving it to him, giving it to them, in that moment, they recognized him. They, they, they recognized that they were in the presence of Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus. They knew him, they encountered him, they met with him in the breaking of the bread. And just in case we're wondering, this phrase, the breaking of the bread in the New Testament, especially for Luke, means nothing other than this gathering for the Lord's Supper. It's that meal that he inaugurated, that last meal, that last supper in that upper room in Jerusalem with his disciples before his death. See, in Acts 2.42, you get that phrase, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. And breaking of the bread doesn't just mean a community meal, it means this communion 
service, this moment that ties them in with that last supper event. In Acts chapter 20, you already see that the practice has become that on the first day of the week, the Lord's day, Sunday, this day, the community would gather together and they would break bread. The breaking of the bread for Luke is not just any community meal. It is this Lord's Supper. And you see it right in the text. In verse 30, if you look with me, you'll see that those four actions he takes at meal with them, at table with them on the Emmaus Road, these are the exact four actions as in Luke chapter 22 as he's inaugurating the Lord's Supper on that last supper night in the upper room. Verse 30, he took the bread. Chapter 22, verse 19, he took the bread. He blessed it. Chapter 22, 19, gave thanks for it. Same concept. He broke it. He broke it. Chapter 22, and he gave it. Just like 22. Each of these actions are perfectly repeated here in this moment on the Emmaus Road. Now, the problem is what we run into is great controversies over communion, right? The minute that the preacher says, we're talking about communion and Jesus' presence, then Christians immediately divide, don't they? Right? For 500 years, we've been fighting about if and when and how Jesus is present in the Lord's Supper, in Holy Communion, in Holy Eucharist. There's so much confusion. It's like the Church of England chaplain who's in an English hospital taking communion around one Sunday and he finds various responses to the question, do you want to receive Holy Communion? No thanks, I'm Church of England. No thanks, I asked for cornflakes. No thanks, I've never been circumcised. There's so much confusion about what communion is. It reminds me of in, in my first parish, my eldest daughter uh, with my wife very pregnant, um, trying to contain her after communion one Sunday, my, my eldest daughter, very young, ran back up to the rail and, and, and Monica's chasing after her. And as, as Monica hauls her back, because she's coming for a second pass at communion, says no, and she screams out over the church, I want more of daddy's blood. Which when I realized there was some catechesis and instruction needed from me with my daughter at home. But there's so much confusion about communion. We've been arguing about how Jesus is present, if Jesus is present in this breaking of the bread. And without trying to minimize the great degree of argument and division that's happened over it, the phrase that I have been taught to use among so many traditions, Anglicans, Baptists, Methodists, Roman Catholics, is to simply say this, can we not agree that Jesus is present in communion in a special way and leave it at that? 
Don't go any further. Don't try to explain how. Don't try to explain where or when or by what means. Just agree that Jesus is present in a special way in communion. And I have found Baptists and Methodists and Anglicans and Roman Catholics and non-church Bible church, non-denomination Bible church folks all be able to gather around that phrase. You see, what the reformers were arguing about passionately was that question, is Jesus present in this moment? What's amazing is when you actually look at the text in Scripture, and I give thanks for a a man named John Echolampadius. We all know John Echolampadius, right? John Echolampadius, who, you know, argued and hugely influenced the Anglicans and the English reformers in this whole debate over communion. He said, let's just remember all the debates going on about this question of when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. He said, just let's be clear. Every one of them are arguing either in Greek or in Latin. And yet, let's just remember, Echolampadius said, he was a much better Hebrew and Aramaic scholar than most of them. He said, Jesus didn't speak Greek very likely. It was recorded in Greek, but Jesus spoke Aramaic. And in Aramaic, there is no is. They're arguing over the word is. This is my body. Does the is mean it's symbolic? Does the is mean it's actually flesh and blood? And he says, there is no is in Aramaic. Jesus in Aramaic literally would have said, this, my body. This, my blood. You figure out what I mean by that. Jesus' point is this, that he's linking together a profound connection between the broken bread and the cup and his own presence. But as Tom Wright says, the theoretical chemistry of it wasn't important and probably wasn't knowable either. But Jesus, Luke is declaring in this moment on Emmaus, Jesus makes himself known to them in the breaking of the bread. And he makes himself known to his church today still in the breaking of the bread. As 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says, Paul writes, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Jesus is present in the breaking of the bread. But what's amazing is it's not just that he's present in the breaking of the bread. These Emmaus disciples not only see his presence, but they see his purpose. See, you gotta ask, why did Jesus use this meal? I mean, was it, did they just come up with this on their own? People have said, oh, the church just, you know, took communion and turned it into something that, that Jesus never intended it to be. But that's not what the road to Emmaus shows us. This meal on Emmaus is incredibly purposeful. See, they didn't come up with this on their own. They didn't conflate the meaning. This this meal was a revelation. Jesus perfectly set up this moment. He was purposeful in this meal moment. And and, and I don't know if, uh, if if you've experienced this, but it's amazing when you see someone really set up the moment perfectly. You know, Jesus in this text is really setting this moment up. He's setting this meal up. And, and some of us are really good at setting up, you know, the situation. 
You want to reveal something to someone, you want to make it special, you set it up well. Some of us are not so good always at setting it up. When I uh, asked Monica to marry me, I did not set it up well. It was, it was one of those moments where it, it just happened so fast. You, you see in Hollywood and you see in so many places, people like lay out these elaborate plans and I'm always shamed when I see those because my proposal was just so not well set up. You see, the ring arrived. I was 20 years old and it was the most expensive thing I'd ever bought in my life. The, the ring arrived and I thought, what am I gonna do? Hide it in my sock drawer? I'm gonna lose it. And so, so I, right in the moment, I said, you know what? The ring's here, the intention's here. I'm gonna propose to her today, no planning. I, I called her up, I said, let's, let's go for a drive. And she said, okay, so we went for a drive. And I thought, we're living in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, it's beautiful. I said, let's go to the beach. Like, this is just all happening in the moment. Let's go to, I'll propose at the beach. And so we show up at the beach and I've got the ring in my pocket and we're walking down the beach and then who walks up but her parents on the same beach. I mean, it's a small town, but seriously? And so the ring stays in the pocket and we talk forever. We get back in the car and I say, let's go get ice cream because there's this great ice cream place. And so we, we go to get ice cream and, 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 and we get there and there's just these kind of creepy people hanging around at the ice cream place. And I'm thinking, I'm not gonna get on my knees outside the ice cream place with these creepy people around. So we, we get the ice cream, we get back in the car and we're driving and, and, and then we get into a, an argument. It, it, was a, it was a full-on fight because she started to say to me, why are you just driving me all over the place? Like, what is going on? And of course, what she's really saying is, is there any planning in today? I'm thinking, actually, no, there's no planning. And so I figure there's this, this, this oversized chessboard, like full-size, you know, person-sized chess pieces. I said, now that's kind of romantic. I'm, I'm searching at this point. And I said, well, we drive up the hill, we get there. And at this point, she says, I'm not getting out of the car. And I said, I'm not proposing. And my friend's broken down Pinto so we're getting out of the car. So finally I get her out of the car, we walk up and I think, okay, this will finally be the moment and the entire outdoor chessboard is boarded up with graffiti. And I surrendered, I said, you know what, fine. This is the best I can do. And I pulled out this little note, it was a little matchbook because I used to send her empty matchbooks and write you know, phrases inside. I handed her the matchbook and she opened it up and it said, will you marry me? And she punched me in the arm said a bad word because she thought I was joking. Because clearly this was not well planned. I pulled the ring out, then came the tears, she knew it was real and history has followed. The point is, the point is, I did not plan this out well at all. But this meal moment on the road to Emmaus, Jesus plans the whole thing out. It's all carefully put together. See, verse 28, as they're approaching the town, we're told, he acted, it says, he acted as if he were going on farther. Do you know what that means? It literally means Jesus played pretend. Now, he wasn't deceiving them. He wasn't lying. He was setting them up. Oh, I think I'll go on a little farther. Oh, no, 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 they say. You, you can't, you've got to stay with us. It's late. Oh, okay, fine. He gets himself invited in. And then in verse 30, at the meal, he does something unexpected. See, he's a guest. But verse 30 says, at table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, 
and gave it to them. You see, Jesus takes the role of the host, even though he's a guest. He's got them them right where he wants them. He takes the role of the host, and then verse 31 says, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And do you know what's amazing about that phrase, their eyes were opened? The grammarians in the room will love this, the grammarians. It's in the passive tense. And what it means, therefore, is they didn't open up their own eyes. Someone else opened their eyes for them. Their eyes were opened. It was a gift. It was an act of God. Jesus was the one in that moment opening the eyes. He was taking the initiative. He was doing the work. He'd set up the whole moments so that he could reveal himself in that place. His purpose was on display in that moment. And then he vanished. He vanished from their sight. Because Jesus knew in creating this special moment of breaking the bread and having them realize and see and have their eyes opened, he knew and was preparing the church for the fact the day would come when we would not see him face to face the same way that they saw him then. The day was coming when not only would he be risen and ascended, but he would be seated at the right hand of the Father. We we say in our Eucharistic prayer that one day, We long for the day when we shall see him face to face. But for now, he is not with us in the same way he was with those disciples. And so he purposely gave them this meal. He he set up this moment to say, here is the meal. Here is the way. I'm about to leave you. I'm about to be vanished from your sight. But let me open your eyes in this meal so that you can have this meal. This meal to constantly remind you that I'm with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. See, Jesus in this moment, in this meal on Emmaus, is is in the breaking of the bread, showing his presence to them. And he's showing them his purpose in this meal. But finally, he is showing them his peace. It's interesting that the immediate next word that we'll read next Sunday In verse 36, when he then appears to all the disciples, is he says, peace be with you. Those are the first words out of his mouth to that scared band of disciples. Peace be with you. If you're in Israel, as I was a couple weeks ago, you'll constantly hear shalom elchem. Peace be with you. Elchem shalom, to you peace. Or if it's Sabbath, shalom shabbat. Shabbat shalom. And this utterance of peace, this, this, this gift of a greeting, peace be with you, is at the core of what is happening and being declared in this meal. You see, in verse 30, there, there's this amazing tiny little phrase. It says that when he was at table with them, he took the bread. When he was at table with them. Luke didn't have to say that. He could have just said, and you know, he broke the bread, but he takes the time to say, while he was at table with them, this phrase at table with them means so much in Jesus' day. We live in a day when I've I've said before, you know, we'll eat at the fast food court at the mall and we don't think anything of it. Oh, with a whole bunch of strangers. But in Jesus' day, and even to today in in the ancient Near East, in, in the Near East today, you will still find that eating together means something. To be at table with someone means something. Ancient Near Eastern tableship, table fellowship says that you are my brother. You are my sister. You're my family. And I accept you. I am for you. I am with you. 
This is what it means to be at table with another. It's amazing that one of the greatest controversies that Jesus would create in his three years of ministry was always about who he was at table with. In Luke's gospel especially, you run into this all the time, right? He's constantly getting in trouble for who he's eating with. You know, he goes to Levi's house, the tax collectors, and what do they say? The Pharisees say, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? He's at a Pharisee's house. You know, he's equal opportunity. He'll eat with anybody, Pharisees or tax collectors. He's with the Pharisees, and a woman comes with an alabaster jar and anoints his feet. And what do they say? Well, he's sitting at table. They say, if this man was really a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is, for she's a sinner. And then, of course, the prologue to the greatest, I think, the greatest parable in all of Luke's gospel, the prodigal son, begins with controversy that the tax collectors and the sinners are gathering around Jesus and they say he's eating with them and welcoming them at table. See, at the core of the gospel, we find Jesus with this action, this act of eating with those who do not who are not worthy to be eaten with, who are broken, who are sinners, who certainly can't be with a holy man of God, certainly can't be with God himself. And yet there he is again and again having a meal with people because it's a sign. It's a sign of the gospel. It's about what God is doing in Christ Jesus, making us worthy and acceptable to stand and sit literally in his presence, to eat with him. You know, I know many of us have been horrified by the story of the 12 Thai boys stuck in the caves. And I know that apparently today they're in the process of trying to bring those boys, that soccer team that got stuck in these caves, they're trying to bring them out in Thailand. And so we need to pray, oh Lord, have mercy on this rescue. But you know what is so horrifying when we hear these kind of stories is it, it, as a parent, it's that sense of separation. Like the, the parents just can't get at their kids. There's such a huge divide. But this is the very situation that all of humanity is in with our heavenly father. Because of our sin, because of our brokenness, we are divided, we are separated. And there seems there's no way we can solve it until Jesus comes on the scene And unlike other kings that would declare themselves with military festivals, would declare themselves with slogans or with shrines or with holy artifacts, this king comes and gives us a meal. He says, this is how I will declare my presence with you, that I will sit with those who do not deserve to sit with me because that is why I've come. You see, in that last supper moment, when Jesus in Luke 22 was at that last meal with his disciples, he did something weird in the Passover meal. They were were going through the usual Passover meal, which was the process of telling again the story of Exodus. God had saved Israel out of Egypt. And that there had been this blood of a lamb that had been put on the doorposts. And if, if, if the blood was there, then the angel of death would pass over and they would recount this story. But that last supper, that last time at table with his friends, Jesus broke from the script and instead during the meal took bread and said, this 
is my body, broken for you. This cup is my blood, poured out for you. And of course, they're thinking, Jesus, you've gone off the script. We've heard this our whole lives. What are you doing? And in that moment, what he's declaring is the fulfillment of everything that scripture's been pointing to. Everything that he was declaring to those disciples on the road as he was opening the scriptures to him to them, that he was, as his cousin John the Baptist declared back in John 1, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He becomes the new Passover. His death and his resurrection becomes the means by which broken sinners can finally be whole and acceptable to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. God was in Christ Jesus making peace with us. That peace, no longer separate, peace with God. I, I close with this. Have you ever wondered who the other disciple was on the road to Emmaus? I mean, people have debated this for 2,000 years because we're told in verse 18 that one of them is named Cleopas, And then the other one's unnamed. And people have had all kinds of theories. And I'm just going to have the boldness to present mine. I'm going with the church fathers on this. So I think I've got some, you know, heavy backers. But in John chapter 20, John chapter 19, verse 25, at the cross of Jesus, we're told that there's a group of women there. And among the women, there is one who is named Mary, wife of Clopas, which is only one letter difference from Cleopas. And as you read the New Testament, you'll see that at times the translations, especially because sometimes it's Aramaic to Greek, you'll get slightly different spellings of things. What if this is Cleopas and Mrs. Cleopas on the road? Mary. It's Mary and Cleopas walking on the Emmaus road. What if it's the two of them? And you'll say, well, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. After all that Jesus has opened to them, showing himself to be the source of everything and the center of everything in the Hebrew scriptures, isn't it amazing that the first recorded meal in scripture, the first recorded meal in scripture is Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, you've got a husband and a wife who eat a meal, Adam and Eve. Their eyes are opened, the text says, because of their sin, and they're banished from God's presence. Isn't it amazing, if it's true that it's Mary and Cleopas, the first meal after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a husband and wife eating together a meal. And again, their eyes are opened, but this time to life. And they're not banished, they're welcomed and received and communing with God himself. Don't you see how the story comes together? In this meal, we see the peace of God on display. What will drive us into mission? What will drive our feet into mission? Luke says, we don't need to be cajoled, we don't need to be admonished, we don't need to be begged. Luke says that mission emerges from burning hearts as the word is opened and broken bread as we recognize him among us in this meal. Do you hear what this means for us as a church? That as we gather at his table, 
That just as those Emmaus disciples can declare that he made himself known to them, he makes himself known today. He shows himself risen and ascended and glorified with us today, but not just for show, not just a declaration of the resurrection, but a declaration of your acceptance and mine. We are welcome at this table, those of us who received him by faith. And those of us who have not yet received him by faith, that's all that grace requires to say, yes, I want his story to be my story. I want his life to be my life. I want his sacrifice to be my sacrifice. And you will find that his meal becomes your meal. Presence, purposeful, and peace every time we gather. And they made known to them what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.